0: Joined now by Dr. Condoleezza Rice. She is, of course, the Denning Professor in Global Business and the Economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And, of course, we know her as the former Secretary of State in the United States and the first woman ever to serve as National Security Advisor. Dr. Rice, welcome back to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Great to have you.
1: It's a pleasure to be back with you, Hugh
0: I must say, Democracy is a Remarkable Book. Stories from the Long Road to Freedom. It's over at HughHewitt.com. I inhaled it. I rarely do that. But uh, congratulations. It's really quite an achievement.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that.
0: It reminds me of two things. The first half of the book reminds me of Dr. Kissinger's On China because you you take your lifelong study of Russia, Ukraine, and Poland and, and go deep. And then it reminds me of the first book I ever worked on, Richard Nixon's The Real War, because the second half of your book is a broad, sweeping dash across the planet. Did you set out that way? Was that the plan at the beginning?
1: No, the, po- the plan at the beginning was really uh, to just take some cases of uh, democracy where the United States had had an impact, because I'm, I'm worried that people no longer think we can have an impact on the course of uh, democracy development across the world. Um, I think it's probably, you know, I, I love the study of Russia and Eastern Europe, and so maybe that shows up a little bit there. Uh, but I thought that uh, these would just be cases in which I'd been personally involved in one way or another so that I could speak frankly both as professor rice and as secretary rice
0: well you have accomplished that and i want to begin at the ending where you close by quoting a brexit supporter and i know you have to stop writing a book at some point but we we just had the french elections before that we had the turkish elections and we have the british elections coming up next month it seems like you could endlessly extend this study because we keep coming to crisis and turning points and i don't think that's going to stop do you
1: I don't think it's going to stop. In fact, uh, one reason that I wrote the the little uh, epilogue called 2016 uh, was I, I really felt it was important. To take note of what was happening with Brexit, with the election of our own president, and uh, what was uh, transpiring across the world, uh, our election was was different because we elected someone who had never been president. Uh, uh, who, I'm sorry, who had never been in government before, and now he's going to be president of the United States. Even with Macron and his win today in in France. Uh, This is someone who comes very much from outside the establishment, Uh, really sort of founded his own movement, his own party. Uh, So I think what you're seeing across the world uh, is that people are not so confident in the political institutions and the kind of established uh, institutions and the people who've been a part of them, and they're reacting to that. And so I wanted to to make sure that I had made it clear that uh, democracies are having that experience as well.
0: Well, with that in mind, I want to focus on, on Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Colombia, and and the Middle East to a certain extent in our, in our 40 minutes or so. Uh, but I want to begin from 30,000 feet. At the end of this book, I thought to myself, you know, you have to constantly read and reread even recent history. I'd forgotten so much of what I knew and lived through, Uh, that you reminded me of the Russian Revolution, the terrible period of the 90s of the Ukrainian. In fact, I never really quite understood that the Ukraine had been through seven distinct periods in the last 100 years of governance until you put it all together. Have you ever known a successful Democratic leader, Secretary Rice, who was not constantly reading and inquiring about history and recent history?
1: I have not, and I think it's really important to, uh, to inquire about history. It really gives you context, you know, for what's going on. Um, even something like Crimea and uh, Putin's annexation of Crimea, we forget that uh, for a lot of Russians, Crimea was considered Russian. And that Putin played to that in a very populist way, and it made him actually very popular in in, uh, Russia. You know, Crimea was given over to Ukraine by uh, by Nikita Khrushchev in 1954, and it was a sort of ill-conceived gift for 300 years of uh, Ukrainian-Russian friendship. Now, of course, it didn't matter when it was all the Soviet Union, but then all of a sudden, Crimea is in Ukraine, not in Russia, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And for many Russians, uh, this wasn't acceptable. So we forget that Putin was playing to a sort of popular view. Uh, It was a violation of international law. It is something we should absolutely never accept or never uh, acknowledge. But within Russia, it was not so unpopular.
0: Well, this is why I want conservatives especially to read democracy as, is to get their, their history up to speed. I want everyone on the new White House staff to read it as well. I thought I knew Ukraine because one of my law partners, Robert O'Brien has been over there on, as an observer in elections and one of my friends, Frank Dowse, was uh, Jim Jones's special attaché when he was head of NATO and, and married a Ukrainian woman. I thought I knew it but then when you walk through Ukraine 1, 1918 to 21, Ukraine 2, 21 to 39, Ukraine in the wars, Ukraine from the wars to the Khrushchev moment, then from Khrushchev to ninety one ninety one to the present you just methodically that was very concise dr rice i don 't know how long it took you to do this book, but it was it 's beautifully compacted
1: well, thank you I appreciate that it, it It took a long time actually because what i what I wanted to do uh, was to to get to the present so that people could understand why these democratic transitions have been so challenging in places like ukraine and and Russia, why Poland initially had a somewhat uh, easier path, or what appeared to be an easier path, because they did have uh, institutions that people admired and respected, like solidarity. And so you have to understand where somebody starts. Uh, but I also was aware that um, I had to get through the history in a way that was accessible and pretty quick. So thanks for saying that I've managed to do that.
0: Uh, now, the other thing that you managed to do is to instill repeatedly, without being pedantic, the key idea of the democratic spirit and what it means to be uh, uh, in the democratic spirit. At the bottom of my notes, I wrote, you have to be willing to accept defeat, and you have to really believe that political campaigns and political warfare are much more preferable to the real thing with bullets and artillery. Uh, that The democratic spirit is just, the, the people you hold up to admire embrace it, and the people that you scold, and sometimes not so gently, don't.
1: Right, right. Because a democracy is really right, sort of perched between um, authoritarianism and chaos. So democracy is that sweet spot. It's the place where you have institutions where people can uh, carry out uh, their concerns, their interests. They can change their leaders peacefully. I, I say in the book that democracy is built for disruption because what we do in democracy is we say, okay, you want change? Go and vote in a new candidate, a new president or a new governor or a new senator. Uh, You want change? You think your rights have been violated? Take it to the courts. And by the way, take it all the way to the Supreme Court if you want to, Brown versus the Board of Education. And because we have this spirit of constitutionalism or spirit of democracy, we are willing to use the institutions of disruption, rather than going into the streets and fighting it out in the streets, and that's a tremendous gift from our founders, uh, from the the people who have sustained that system over, over the more than 200 and 250 years or so of our existence. And we sometimes lose patience with those who are just starting that process. You know, he would, democracy is a pretty mysterious thing, that you get people to say. I'm going to rely on this abstraction called the Constitution rather than my family or my clan or my religious group. And uh, we've been very fortunate that uh, we have those institutions. And I think part of our uh, part of our greatness is to be able to help other, others find them, too.
0: Part of the utility of democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom, and it's linked over to HughHewitt.com, America. Go and get the book. Uh, you will... You'll just be absorbed in it as I was. But part of the utility is to give, uh, whether it's a new administration, a new West Wing, a new State Department, a new Department of Defense, um, examples from the recent past of the democratic spirit so that you can look at uh, President Uribe in Colombia accepting a Supreme Court decision not to allow him to proceed to a referendum, as you write about, and contrast that with the first president of the post-Soviet Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, who you wrote very elegantly quote, did not react in a democratic spirit to real political <laughs> opposition, so there are there are people who get it like Uribe and people who don 't get it like Kuchma, and they 're right now they're they're real examples of how to judge people
1: that's right, and what we have to do is recognize that you know the United States of america isn 't going to be able to change the circumstances of a of a country that can't find good leadership and all of that, but we can help. Uh, to develop civil society and constraints on the executive and, and people help to develop people who are going to want to make those changes. One of the most remarkable things about democracy is when people lose an election and they call and they say, uh, you won, and now I'm going to support you. We saw that for the first time, by the way, uh, a year ago or so in Nigeria, where the defeated president of Nigeria actually just called his successor. He called the man who defeated him and said, all right, I will now support you. Uh, We saw one of the most amazing times I've ever experienced was when Nelson Mandela visited the White House. Mm. And um, President Bush and and, uh, President Mandela obviously didn't agree about Iraq, and I was a little worried that the conversation was just going to be all about what the United States had done in Iraq. So I said to President Bush, I said, why don't you talk to him about AIDS relief? He's very appreciative of what you've done. Well, you know, President Bush wasn't going to follow that script. So he sat down and he said, so why didn't you run for office again? And Mandela said, because I wanted my African brethren to know that it was okay to step down.
0: The Washington example. Life. Yeah, the Washington example. The Washington example.
1: example. So I get first presidents like that are very fortunate.
0: uh, And I don't want to go on and remark that while India has had this happen 16 times, and so they're really the youngest of the new democracies to successfully practice the peaceful transition of power. In Iraq, uh, Prime Minister Maliki stepped down. His predecessor did, and the expectation is that his successor will as well. That is astonishing, actually, in the Arab world. That's three it's times. Astonishing.
1: It's astonishing. Arab strongmen don't step down. You either carry them out feet first, uh, or they, they take their countries down. And in this case, we are seeing um, small steps in Iraq that suggest that the spirit of democracy uh, is there. You're getting the people able to go out into the streets to protest their government. You have massive numbers of press in uh, Iraq that are constantly writing about what the government is doing. And and yes, I know that the road for Iraq has been hard, and I personally recognize um, responsibility for helping President to make the decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein. But I would rather be Iraqi than Syrian today.
0: Amen. Uh, th-
1: this is not a government that is using barrel bombs and chemical weapons against its people. In fact, it's a government whose soldiers are fighting on the front lines with our people advising them to overthrow Isis and so um, I think there are a lot of good things happening uh, there it's it's not perfect yet and you know no democracy is ever perfect but my goodness I think we we need to acknowledge that they've made some progress
0: last big question before the specifics um, back when I was working with RN uh, there was a operational definition for whether or not the world was moving forward or backwards and it was Uh, If you look at the globe, can you say that there is an ongoing incremental expansion of liberty and literacy in a growing number of stable regimes in or allied to the West? And that was kind of President Nixon's view for the real war and then for every subsequent book in retirement. If you look at the globe today, Dr. Rice, do we have that ongoing incremental expansion of liberty and literacy in a growing number of stable regimes?
1: I think we do. Uh, We have some that have gone backwards, unfortunately, in terms of liberty. Certainly, uh, Turkey has gone backwards. Uh, You know, we have to worry about Poland and some of the things that are happening in Poland. But if you just take a a look as to where we were in, say, 30 years ago, when um, you had countries, quote, trapped behind the Iron Curtain, And you think of now where a Czech Republic is, uh, or Slovenia, or the Baltic states. Now, one of the things that we tend to forget as Americans is how just standing for moral authority matters. We knew we couldn't do anything physically about the forcible incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union after World War II. But when I was the Special Assistant for Soviet Affairs for Brent Scowcroft under George H.W. Bush, there was a stamp on my desk. And I stamped every paper, the United States does not recognize the forcible incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union. And you know what? When conditions changed, they appreciated that. They remembered that. And now those Baltic state countries are some of our strongest allies. So standing for what is right matters.
0: The incrementalism matters. The Helsinki Accords, as you you recall in this book, no one really put a lot of store in them, and then they became the wedge. Uh, I, I did... Detour here. Uh, You write about your time on the National Security Council. You just mentioned it. One of my closest friends in the world, Dan Poneman, was your colleague under Bob Gates as the deputy. And, And then you were, of course, the National Security Advisor. So no one in America maybe has a better position than you to judge General McMaster and the team he's put together in the new West Wing. What do you make of it?
1: I think that, uh, first of all, uh, H.R. McMaster is one of the finest generations of, uh, several, uh, f- finest generals of several generations in the United States. And, uh, he is going about this in a systematic and quiet way, and I think the NSC is functioning very well. I think you saw that functioning with the President's decision, uh, to strike Syria, which looks, it was, it was put together really very elegantly. Uh, We also have an outstanding Secretary of State in Rex Tillerson and a terrific Secretary of Defense uh, in Jim Mattis, so this is a very good national security team, and I think they're functioning very well together, and uh, it's going to serve us well.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you say that about state, because I'm a little worried that the secretary said to the New York Times he doesn't have to fill his political appointees to 2018. I'm very disappointed that Rick Grinnell was passed over at the U.N. and then for NATO. And And so you're not alarmed by the slow pace of appointments and the people who are not showing up, even though we thought they were going to be showing up?
1: Well, it would be better if uh, if state were fully um, staffed. But I also think that um, we shouldn't assume that, that Rex Tillerson is home alone. I mean, there are some very, very good uh... officers mostly foreign service officers who are there staffing for instance um, he's made now his nomination for deputy but the person who's been acting deputy tom shannon uh... worked for me as assistant secretary for latin america he was ambassador to brazil he's best of class uh, in this generation of foreign service officers so he's a lot of good people around it. but yes they need to they need to get going um... you know you, they they had some challenges uh, there are an awful lot of people who said they 'd never serve in this administration, and um, they have to they have to go through and vet and decide um, whether they 're comfortable with the the names that they 're getting They also as people who came from outside of government didn 't have the kind of normal in-waiting groups of uh, people who served in the last Republican administration. So they have some challenges, but um, I'm confident that when they get this team in place, it's going to be a really good team because at the top, it's stellar.
0: You know, you just reminded me of something in Democracy, the book that you write about, where regimes have to confront a moment where they decide whether to forget the past and walk away from it because it's better for the future rather than to relive old grievances. And that brings me to the never-Trumpers. I was never-never-Trumper, but I was also not very happy with him on many occasions throughout the campaign. I think maybe you and I share that. But I don't want a job, but I don't think he ought to be keeping the never-Trumpers out. I think an amnesty would be in the best interest of the country. What do you think?
1: Well, I think he has to come to terms with uh, how he's. And look, he's reaching out. Um, I I had the uh, the honor of going and meeting with President uh, a few weeks ago in Washington. He's clearly reaching out, and so I think they'll they'll come to terms with how to think about what happened in the campaign and what now happens as president. But we all, as Americans, recognize that he's our president, and uh, I respect the presidency. I respect anyone who runs for it, and and. Uh, fair and square wins it, and I, I respect, by the way, the voices of the people who had felt left out of the system, who he represented. A friend of mine calls this the Do You Hear Me Now election, and so <laughs> I have a lot of a lot of respect uh, for that, and, and I'll do what I can to help him.
0: I think we may have a Do You Hear Me Now election coming up in Great Britain, and that brings me the oldest democracy on the planet is Great Britain. We have the oldest con- written constitution, but they have the oldest democracy— and maybe Jeremy Corbyn and and McDonnell, the, the shadow chancellor, they may be wiped out. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's such a bad thing. The Canadian conservatives were wiped out, people forget, in 1993. I mean, reduced to, I think they lost 154 out of 156 seats. Is, would that be a good thing for Great Britain? Because these are just Marxist hardliners, Dr. Rice. They are not the laborites of Tony Blair's era. And
1: some uh, strange has happened to the britain labor uh, British labor Party, and uh it is i think no longer representative of a uh much of it of of a governing um a governing philosophy and you 're seeing that in in some of the the people and so maybe it does need renovation uh It is a long way from where Tony Blair was when he came to power with the so called third way uh, but I think what we 're seeing in all of these countries is that parties are uh, perhaps have gotten a bit um, I- a bit inbred if you will that they talk only to themselves they 've got to somehow reach back out to the populations and really start to represent the interests of the people. One of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, very often in young democracies you get these liberal parties that can recite the the tenets of democratic liberalism perfectly. You know, you need separation of powers and you need to constrain the executive and they talk about human rights and they talk about freedom of the press. But they don't seem to have any connection to actual populations. I always found it uh, frustrating, really, in in Russia, for instance, that some of the the best, most liberal parties that I would have been very comfortable with had no answer for the widow out in Perm who's lost her pension. Yeah. No answer for the soldier who's been demobilized from Eastern Europe and now is living in a park.
0: In Gorky Park. So, that was an amazing part of democracy, when you yes, rec- recalled so the all, turbulent 90s.
1: The turbulent 90s. So every party um, has to find its roots in the people and in their actual concerns. And I, I think one of the things that's frustrating Americans right now about Washington is that it feels like a kind of inside game and uh that's why perhaps so many people not just in Washington but in Paris uh even where there's an outsider now as president of Paris maybe people are saying uh, you know let's stop remember us out here
0: Dr. Rice, uh, in in democracy, there's a very gripping scene where newly elected President Uribe is in your office and W blows in without knocking. You note that that's okay when you're the president. And and he shouts out that he is committed to, if necessary, killing the bad guys. And I immediately wrote down in my notes, Rodrigo Duarte. And Mm -hmm. do you see a parallel? Because we are uncomfortable. As you wrote, you were uncomfortable with Uribe. And many Americans were uncomfortable with Uribe. But connecting with the people, they need to be protected from the violence in the Philippines as he protected, Uribe did, the Colombian countryside. Do you think there's a parallel here?
1: Well, I think there's one really essential difference. And um, that is that uh, Uribe was determined to do it through what he called democratic security. He was actually determined to make his, his campaign to defeat the FARC. Uh, which was ravaging the country. We forget that uh, the Colombian military couldn't go into or, or police couldn't go into 30 percent of the country, which was controlled by the FARC. And but he was determined to do it through democratic institutions. So he was determined to punish uh, the insurgents, but also to punish anyone who was a paramilitary who had been killing people. He was determined uh, to bring uh, people justice, even if they were members of his own party. Uh, he didn't rule as a strong man. You know, I remember talking to him about how he sold democratic security. He went around the country and to with his cabinet to some of the the most hard hit places and talked to people. So that's the difference in the way that Duterte um, is is uh, ruling in the Philippines and the way that Uribe carried out this very crucial mission in Colombia. And that's something we should be saying to the Philippines leadership. Uh, Interesting. Reinforce democracy, not just uh, the
0: security piece. Yeah, you you are very sparing in specific criticism of people throughout democracy. But one person you called out by name was Senator Leahy for refusing aid to Uribe and trying to make it a uh, and trying to cast him as a as a thug and a, and no military aid when in fact he was a Democrat. Should we go slow in in at least? Duarte won less than a year ago. Uh, I don't know what he's done. I don't want extrajudicial executions, but it does seem to me that a lot of people are in a hurry to uh, maybe confuse his vulgarism with actual violence.
1: Well, I, th- I think you do have to be very careful. Look, the Philippines has been a good ally, and we should, be, we should be careful to try to maintain that alliance. I will say, uh, his language about the United States uh, certainly got my attention. And uh, so uh, maybe this could be a two-way street that uh, he finds a way to bring himself back into the fold.
0: Well said. Let me turn to Russia before we run out of time. Because this is, if for no other reason people should read Democracy, is to get your take on Russia and Putin. And I love that you know us, Condi, you say of Vladimir Putin telling you, and then you know the shoe's about to drop. And I love probably my favorite point in the book is page 179, where he casually introduces you at his docket to Viktor Yanukovych quote, one of those odd moments that happen often with Putin. He was never subtle. He might as well have said, meet Viktor Yanukovych, my man in Kiev. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, can it he change? A moment. Can, can Putin change? Is there any hope for him?
1: Uh, I don't know that he can change. Um, I think he fundamentally believes that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a tragedy. I think he believes that uh, he, the Russians have been humiliated by the West. Um, he, he, probably believes that we are out to get him, which is why I think he uh, has reacted to uh, elections by saying, well, you called my elections fraudulent, now now let me show you fraudulent. So uh, there's an eye for an eye character that suggests to me it's going to be hard. But in some ways, he isn't the future of Russia. He may be president for a long time, but there's a different Russia. When When I went to the Soviet Union as a graduate student back in 1979, Russians... Wouldn't look at you. They looked at their feet. Now they travel. They send their kids to school uh, abroad. Their their um, universities like Stanford. They spoil their young kids at McDonald's and they buy their furniture at IKEA. Uh, those Russian um, city elites, urban elites, and even urban middle class don't want to go back to an isolated Russia. And so we need to keep our eye on the possibility of Russians emerging as the creative and innovative people that they really are, and finding their political voice. So while I don't think Vladimir Putin will change, I do think Russia could change. And But even with Vladimir Putin, look, you you have to set the rules of the game. You have to say to him, we are going to protect our lives under Article 5, an attack upon one is an attack upon all of the NATO, NATO treaty. Do not fly bomber runs along the coast of Sweden. Stop threatening our uh, ships with your aircraft. Uh, don't even think about further movement in Ukraine. I think we ought to arm the Ukrainians to send that message. But we also need to find our places that we can cooperate cooperate with the Russians. And, uh, you know, places like North Korea, perhaps we can. Uh, but I I don't have much hope that Putin himself is
0: going to. You know, I came away from what is a really remarkably well-constructed essay on on Russian history, schizophrenic as always, as Nixon was. It, 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 oh, so he's Vladimir the Great. So we have some understanding of how he ended up being a czar. And I recall czars, when they pass from the scene, things can change very quickly. Robert Massey's Dreadnought came to mind. Mm-hmm. But you point out there is this Siloviki. Am I pronouncing it correctly, Dr. Rice? Uh, okay. yeah,
1: Siloviki, okay. right.
0: Yeah. That it exists now. Can you explain that to the audience, and what that means for Putin's internal dynamic?
1: Yes. Well, uh, it's a word for the powerful. Silikov means the powerful, and it's how the Russians refer to the syndicate around Putin. Uh, they are mostly men of the uh, security services with which he, with whom he grew up somehow in the what well, was the KGB now the FSB. Uh, they are hardened men, uh, many people believe that they 've made personal fortunes based on russia 's oil wealth, and that they will defend uh, their personal fortunes and their political power uh, to the death. Um, they have a tendency to be pretty tough on political uh, adversaries. A number of people have either disappeared or or been killed but uh, something interesting is happening even there, and I mention it in the book. Um, some of those uh, silky are being pushed out.
0: Ivanov, yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, it almost feels as if he no longer even wants around him uh, those of his cohort who he might have trusted at some point, but now he doesn't want anyone around him who will challenge him. And so uh, that's also a somewhat dangerous development. But uh, Russia is unfortunately run a little bit like a syndicate, and and, uh, the Russian people know it.
0: Is there a fear on your part that he could go Gletkin, he could go Stalin, that he's president for life?
1: I I think he could be president for a long time, but uh, but Russia is different. Russia is different. And um, I think that too much of an effort to uh, keep himself in power forever um, will probably create something of a backlash. Even just a few weeks ago, we saw people bravely come out into the streets to protest corruption. And uh, the regime really didn't know what to do. Uh, they don't really want blood to run in the streets. And so one thing that I would say and, and warn is that sometimes these regimes, these authoritarian regimes, are brittle. And something happens to them and they crack. I don't see the element that, that's, that's going to make that happen in Russia today, but I wouldn't count it out.
0: I remember Solzhenitsyn's memoir, "The Oak and the Calf." What if it's all paper mache? What if you can poke a stick through it? And I, I don't think that's true about Putin's Moscow. But let me ask you about Team Trump and the Russia story and how they put it to bed. I do not believe. I believe the FBI director that there is no evidence of any uh, inappropriate collusion with people presently in power in the in the White House or the West Wing or the President. But how? What do you do if you're Donald Trump with these continual? Whispers of inappropriate relationship with, with Russia.
1: Yeah, um, I think you probably have to let this play out. I hope this would, would really play out through the intelligence committees because they can get the right information and they can do what's necessary. Look, I, I am really furious that the Russians uh, did what they did in terms of hacking. I I believe the intelligence agencies on this. But we have to be a little bit careful. Uh, Vladimir Putin is an an eye-for-an-eye kind of guy. And he was really unhappy that uh, we called into question his election in 2012. And I think this is a little bit, uh, now let me call into question yours. And the greatest satisfaction is when he thinks we have lost confidence in our own democratic processes, uh, in our own electoral processes. And so uh, I wouldn't give him that satisfaction. Let's investigate it. Let's figure out what we want to do. But let's uh, state very strongly that the United States of America um, knows what you did, and at a time of our choosing, we'll deal with it. But we are absolutely confident in the outcomes of our election, and we're moving on.
0: My last question has to do with uh, Iran, the Revolutionary Republic. You have the very lightest of rebukes, but it's a hammer, to President Obama about the Green Revolution. Quote, the president apparently did not want to contaminate the revolution with outside interference – and that comes after you very carefully recount how the CIA poured money into Solidarity's coffers when it was necessary to help them resist Jaruzelski uh, and the rest of the Polish communists. Um, how brittle is the Iranian regime? You know Jim Mattis very well from your colleague days at Stanford. He understands Iran probably better than any other American out there. Uh, he's been up against Soleimani. He knows this. What do you think is the future of that country, and how hard should we push them?
1: This is a regime that oversees a population where uh, 70% of the uh, population is under the age of 30. They are outward-looking. Uh, I've had students go there who talk about how much they love Americans. Uh, this this regime, uh, this theocratic uh, regime, is sitting on a powder keg. Now, we can't bring about change immediately, but I want to say something about those people who were in the streets in 2009, Hugh. They were carrying signs in English. So obviously they weren't worried about being contaminated by outside parties. So I think we ought to be doing everything that we can um, to support the development of civil society. I favor trying to get Iranian students here and the like. But the one thing I think we had going for us that we gave up was those sanctions, which had begun in our administration and had continued through the Obama administration and had gotten tougher. Those sanctions were actually starting to bite the regime that's why they were willing to come to the negotiating table but by letting up early uh they and now giving them back a lot of their um their assets so that they can make more trouble in the middle east i think we took some of the pressure off that regime that was a I disastrous. would see the pressure remain.
0: It's a disastrous move. The, the last comment is, I walk away from democracy saying, Americans always underestimate the speed at which events can move. And you talked about in the poll and how they had the broker deal all set up, and all of a sudden the yeah. people decided, no, we're going to go faster than that. And, and things can go fast indeed, and we're never, ever, it seems to me, ready to go at the speed of the people when they move.
1: We aren't, but we should always remember that when people decide they've had enough, they've had enough. And our goal should be to help prepare countries uh, for that moment when people have had enough. And by the way, especially with our allies, I understand. You have to meet with the president of Turkey. You have to meet with the president of Egypt. We have to deal with those regimes. Uh, They are our allies. But we ought to be saying to them, you know, try to get to a place where your people uh, can feel their own power through reform before they're in the streets.
0: Dr. Rice, uh, congratulations on Democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom. Great book. It's over, linked over at com. Look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thank you so much. Great to talk to you.